Now, David and Saul have been introduced with each other. But most of the time that Saul's been seeing David is playing the liar. Now, that's important because they're going to present David to Saul in chapter 17. You're going to be like, wait a minute, don't they already know each other? But he may not think of a 12 or 13, 14-year-old boy as fighting Goliath. Okay, if Saul is a head taller than everybody else is afraid of Goliath, he's probably not thinking of this 13, 14-year-old boy as his first choice for fighting Goliath. So it's not that he doesn't know who David is in chapter 17. It's that he doesn't think of David as a warrior to fight a man like Goliath. And that's important to understand. This is not, a lot of people get confused and they're saying, oh, here you go. The Bible is contradicting itself because David's introduced to Saul in chapter 16 and then he's introduced to Saul again in chapter 17. That contradiction shows you the Bible is not reliable. That's not what's going on. David is being introduced in a different mode now to Saul. It's kind of like you have a really good friend and you've been hanging out a lot and then they do like this play the saxophone for your like and you're like oh my gosh I didn't know you could play the saxophone too and it's like it's a new thing that's being introduced so chapter 17 remember one of the ways that you figure out who people are is by what they say and what they do and what's even more important is what they say and what they do do they match up with each other the bible very rarely gives you dialogue that's another thing that's rare in the bible in fact, with David's life, we get very little dialogue for David. You would think when David is one of the men, men or women in the Bible that gets more chapters and more verses dedicated to his life than anybody else other than like Moses. And yet he talks less than Moses. And we very rarely are given what he's thinking. In a lot of ways, we have a lot of information about what David does, but very little information about his heart, his thoughts, and his words. And so when the narrator starts off with David talking, pay attention to what he's saying. This is very important. This is what a lot of people miss when they go through this chapter. Because this is really... Now, the other thing, too, is remember, this is not about the underdog beating up the, the big company. We often teach this like, hey, look at the little man. God can use the little man and overcome the big giant. That's not the point of this story. It's not about the underdog rising up against the enemy. That's kind of there, but it's a very minor background idea. That is not the point of this story. So pay attention to what David is saying and doing beyond just a surface reading and know that this is not really about the underdog getting the victory. The Philistines gathered their troops for battle, and they assembled at Sakoth and Judah, and they camped in Ephes Damim between Sakoth and Azek. And Saul and the Israelites' army assembled in the camp of the valley of Elah, and where they arranged their battle lines to fight against the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites on the other, with the valley between them. We don't know why they're at war with each other, except that they're just always at war. We don't know what the particular conflict is, why the Philistines are more present now than they before. And we don't know how much time has gone between chapters 16 and 17 because this is episodic. Then a champion came out from the camp of the Philistines. His name was Goliath, and he was from Gath. He was close to seven feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was wearing scale body armor, and the weight of his bronze body armor was 5,000 shekels. He had bronze skin shin guards on his legs and a bronze javelin. 
slung over his shoulders. The shaft of his appearance was like a weaver's beam, very flexible, and the iron point of his spear weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer was walking before him. The first thing you need to understand is that all of our biblical original manuscripts don't agree on how tall Goliath is. We have some manuscripts um, that basically say that he was six cubits in a span. That is specifically coming from the Hebrew, what's called Mesoretic text, like the oldest, most reliable Hebrew text. It's a combination of multiple Hebrew passages or texts put together in a particular volume. It's one of the oldest and most reliable. It says that it is six cubits in a span. A cubit is anywhere between 18 and 22 inches. By this time period, it's probably more like 18 inches. A span is a half of a cubit. So about... So that puts it at nine feet and six inches tall. That's probably the tallest that he is. The Septuagint puts him at four cubits and a span, which puts him at six feet and seven inches. Now the Septuagint, in some cases, is actually more accurate than the Hebrew text because the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, is based on some other manuscripts in addition but that's where you really just got to spend hours and hours as a geek looking at the Hebrew and the Greek and figuring it all out. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, we don't actually know which one is right. Now, many people have used this to say, look, your Bible's ridiculous. There's no, the Goliath cannot be nine feet tall. There's no way. There's nobody around today who's nine foot tall. That's not true. I actually went on the internet and I looked up like websites that's listed all the world's tallest people. It's amazing how tall people are, how many people there are that are really tall. I mean, there's literally, you go through and you go to the records and there are 70 people right now currently alive in the world who are over seven and a half feet tall. 70, seven, zero. There are 70 people currently right now who are over seven and a half feet tall, alive right now. And then when you look at eight foot tall, who are over eight foot or eight foot and a half, there's like 30 people who are currently like eight to eight and a half foot tall right now, alive. And then when you look at all the people that we know about, because we haven't been recording things for very long in a very accurate like Guinness Book of World Records kind of a way. But if you look at all the people that have ever been lived since we started recording people's height in a more reliable kind of way, which is probably about the last 100, 150 years, there's literally over 120 people who are over, the, over eight foot tall. There's actually way more people than what you think. In fact, right now, on record, this doesn't mean this guy is the world's tallest guy. It just means that this is the only guy that we know about since we started recording things more accurately. But the world's tallest guy is Robert Waldo, and he lived in 1918 to 1940, and he was 8 feet and 11 inches. And there's pictures of him. You can go Google him. He's 8 foot and 11 inches. He's 1 inch away from 9 foot tall. Now, a picture of him and he's in the Guinness Book of World Records, and he was seen by many people. He's only seven inches taller, seven inches shorter than Goliath. That's like this. It's like stretching, I mean, really, if you stretch your thumb and your index finger out, that's about six inches. 
But that's not that much. It's not like, oh my gosh, he's eight foot and 11 inches, but Goliath being nine foot and four, oh, that's ridiculous. That's just stretching it way too far. That's not the Bible being inaccurate. We're not talking about fee fi fo thumb the giant guy. Okay, we're just talking about a guy who's only seven inches taller than a guy that we actually have a photograph of and many, many people witnessed and measured him and he's documented, very reliable. That's not unrealistic. So even though most translators think that he's closer to the six foot or seven foot area, it still doesn't matter. It doesn't make it more trustworthy because the nine foot guy is not unrealistic either. And that's important to understand. Don't buy into snoops. And all that kind of stuff and think, well, that's unreal. Because the reality is, literally, it takes like one second to find this guy on the Internet. And, and, and he's only seven inches shorter than Goliath. That's not unrealistic. That's not unrealistic. So Goliath is a tall guy. However, the emphasis is not on how tall he is. It's not even his armor. His armor would weigh about like 100 pounds all total. The tip of his spear is about 40 pounds. That's a, that's a weight of just the bar if you're bench pressing and all that's like in a tip. The whole point is that he is fearsome. The whole point is that this guy is a battle-ready tank. And he is fearsome and he's scary. And the other point the narrator is making is, who is the most qualified person to go against him? Saul. Because Saul is a head taller than everybody else. And that's exactly why he was picked. And yet Saul is scared. And Saul is cowering in his tent. And the whole point that the narrator is trying to emphasize is not on the exact facts of how big and how much everything weighs, but that Goliath is a fearsome, scary, giant of a man, metaphorically speaking. And Saul is the most qualified, the most equipped, and the appointed one by God, and yet he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. So every day, Goliath stood and called to Israel's troops, Why do you come out to prepare for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose for yourselves a man, so you may come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and strike me down, we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and strike him down, you will become our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy Israel's troops this day. Give me a man so we can fight each other. And when Saul and all the Israelites heard the words of the Philistines, they were upset and very afraid. Goliath is asking for a champion battle. There is no record of champion battles being done in the Semitic world in this region. And a champion battle is basically the idea, instead of our, my entire army going against your entire army and us clobbering each other, let's just pick one man from each side and they'll fight to the death and they determine the winner. That doesn't seem to really exist in the ancient world in the Semitic region. And a lot of people have used it as an argument for the Bible being out of context, out of date. Like this is a much later story being read back. The problem with that is, this is not initiated by the Israelites, it's initiated by who? Goliath. And if Goliath is a Philistine, we know the Philistines originally came from the Greek region. And there are many accounts of the Greeks settling things through champion battles. In fact, that's how the Iliad begins in a lot of ways. 
And so this is not initiated by an Israelite. This is initiated by a Philistine who has a deeper root across the sea. And so he's the one initiating this. But notice how he undermines Saul. He basically starts off and says, are you, the law, are you not the servants of Saul? And he's questioning Saul's leadership. He's questioning Saul's ability. And he might be playing into a dissatisfaction with Saul as their leader. And it seems that he gets that Israel is not maybe 100% totally okay with Saul. He's not doing good in the polls recently. And the difference is they're just trading one master for another master. That's the deal he's presenting. He's trying to paint it as good as possible. Like, okay, you didn't like the last president. You're not going to like the new president. So what's the difference? Let's just trade out. <laughs> and that seems to be what he's presenting more. Just send, just, this isn't this big of a deal. It's not like we're going to wipe you out. We haven't wiped you out. We've been controlling you all along. Saul hasn't changed anything. Nothing will change after Saul. Don't worry about it. Just send a champion. Let's figure this out. And everything will go back the way it's always been. Now, David was a son of this Ephraimite named Jesse from Bethlehem. Ephraimite as in this city of Bethlehem, not the tribe of Ephraim. He had eight sons, and in Saul's days, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war, and the names of the three sons who went to war were Elab, his firstborn, Abinadab, the second oldest, and Shema'ah, the third oldest. But David was the youngest, and while his three oldest sons followed Saul, David was going back and forth from Saul in order to take care of his father's sheep in Bethlehem. So he's bringing food to his brothers on the battle lines. Meanwhile, for 40 days, the Philistines approached every morning and evening and took position. Jesse said to his son David, Take your brothers and the ephah of roasted grain and ten loaves of bread and go quickly to the camp of your brothers. And also take these ten portions of cheese to their commanding officers. Got to make them happy too, so that your sons don't get overlooked. Find out how your brothers are doing and bring back their pledge that they have received the goods. They are with Saul and the whole Israelite army in the Valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. So this is how God is going to get David onto the battlefield, even though he's not qualified to fight. So David got up early in the morning and entrusted the flock to someone else who would watch over it. After loading up, he went just as Jesse had instructed him, and he arrived at the camp. Now it's very important to understand that he's obeying his father, which he's obedient to a higher authority. That's important. And he's not just carelessly running off. He's making sure that the sheep are still taken care of by a reliable person. All this shows that David is respectful, obedient, and responsible which Saul is not. After loading up, he went as Jesse instructed, and he arrived at the camp of the army, was going out to the battle line, shouting its battle cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up at the battle lines opposite one another, and after David had entrusted his cargo to the care of the supply officer, he ran to the battlefront. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were doing. As he was speaking with them, the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, was coming up for the battle lines of the Philistines, and he spoke the way he usually did. And David heard it. And when all the men of Israel saw this man, they retreated from his presence and were very afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? He does, he does so to defy Israel. Now remember, defying Israel means you're defying who? God. But the king will make a man will make the man who can strike him down very wealthy. 
He will give his daughter in marriage, and he will make his father's exempt from tax obligations in Israel. I just do it for the no taxes. <laughs> Forget marrying the, the king's daughter and all that money. Like, 20% of my income staying in my pocket every year, that's awesome. Okay? <laughs> like, I'll risk it. But this is the price. First, I'll make you really wealthy. Now, remember, David is in a very low-income family with no social status. So that's very attractive. Second, you will be married to the king's daughter, which puts you in line for the throne as king, potentially, if you ignore the prophecy of God. But it puts you in contact with all these other really wealthy, noble people, and it gives you plenty of opportunities in life. And then three, no taxes. And we know how good that is. This is the prize. Now, that's a big, big deal. No matter how wealthy you are in America, you still don't get out of taxes. I mean, this is an incredible, incredible prize for defeating the enemy. And it's important that you understand this. David asked the men who were standing near him, what will be done for the man who strikes down the Philistine and frees Israel from the humiliation? For who is uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the armies of the living God? The soldiers told him what had been promised, saying, this is what will be done for the man who can strike him down. This is the first time David ever talks. What do you notice? What will be done? He wants to know what the reward is for the guy who defeats the enemy. Is that the mark of a good, obedient servant of Yahweh? If somebody says, hey, this person over here needs a lot of help, they're kind of starving, and they need, and you're like, what's in it for me? You'd be like, okay, you're not qualified for church leadership. <laughs> like, seriously? The first thing he asks is, what is the reward? Did Moses ask what the reward was? No, in fact, Moses' life was a misery because of his leadership. He didn't get any rewards. It was actually bad for him. Did Joshua ask what the rewards were for defeating the Amalekites? No. No, we've never really seen anybody ask for what the reward is if I defeat the enemy except for one guy, Jephthah. Jephthah was that warrior at the end of Judges who they were like, come lead us and deliver us from the Philistines or from the, sorry, from the Ammonites. And Jephthah's like, yeah, but what will you do for me? We'll make you king. Oh, okay, I'll do it now. The first thing you're being introduced to is that David is kind of like a Jephthah. And he's asking for the reward. He wants to know what's in it for him. Now you're like, oh, okay, come on. It's not that big of a deal. But it is. And it's a big deal because of what's going to happen next. Now what else do you learn about David in this dialogue? He has an appreciation for God's power. He is offended that this guy is opposing God's army. And he has appreciation for what God can do. Now, is that a good thing? Yeah. So right now, David's a enigma. He's mixed. He's gray. You don't know exactly, okay, wait a minute. He, he's, he's trusting God, but he also wants a reward. Let's keep reading. When David's oldest brother, Elab, heard him speaking to the men, he became angry with David and said, Why have you come down here? To whom did God did you entrust those few sheep in the desert? I am familiar with your pride and your deceit. You have come down here to watch the battle. And David replied, What have I done now? Can I just say, can I say anything? Can't I say anything? Immediately right here, 
He says, I know how evil your heart is. Now, is that true according to God? No. Which means the narrator is automatically telling you this is why Elab was disqualified as king. God knows his heart, and Elab is completely misreading everything. David's got a godly heart, but Elab thinks he's a wicked man, and this is why he's not a good king. But at the same time, he says, I know how prideful you are. Is there anything David's done that kind of suggests some pride? And he wants a reward. reward. And you're kind of like, okay, but he kind of is right, right? I mean, David's acting very prideful because he wants a reward. And he says that, I know how prideful you are. And you're like, okay, he knows his brother. But the same thing, he says, your your heart is evil and wicked. And you're like, yeah, but the narrator's intentionally doing this. He's showing you how Elab is not completely on target, but at the same time, yeah, there's some things there. Then David says, oh my gosh, get off my back. Can I say anything right? And then he immediately turns it around, and what does he say? Then he turned around for those who were nearby, someone else, and asked the same question. And they gave him the same answer as before. And when David's words were overheard, reported to Saul, and he called him. He wanted to know what again? What's the reward? He asked somebody else just to make sure it's all accurate. Now, what do you do with a guy who constantly keeps going around and asking, what will be done for me if I do this? What will be done for me if I do this? What will be done for me if I do this? Does that sound like humility? Does that sound like altruism? No. It may be easy to misread the first one and think, oh, okay, whatever. But when he keeps asking over and over and over again to make sure that it's completely accurate, the implication is he's not willing to act until he knows the information is correct, which means knowing what the reward is is very important to him. Very important to him. And this automatically shows you a chink in his armor. He is prideful. And he's not willing to just go out and defeat the enemy just for the sake of God. He wants something for himself too. And right now you're just like, oh, that's not good, David. That's not good. 